So then, study 10 is about what Paul says about the church. And he has such a lot to say about the church that he's in fact going to cover two studies. So our study today and our study next month. Now, the first thing to say is that Paul often refers to the church as, and I quote, the body of Christ. The body of Christ. That's because now that Christ has ascended into glory, the church is his representative on earth. And, here's a really scary thought to me anyway, each member of the church is an ambassador for Christ. So that's you, that's me, we are ambassadors for Christ in the world. That's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5.20. And every time I think about that, I think what an awesome responsibility that is. To know that I may be the only Christian that some people in this world ever see in their whole lives. And what are they going to deduce from seeing me? No comments, please. But it's just that awesome responsibility, isn't it? About living out the Christian life faithfully so that people see a difference in us. However, Paul says unequivocally that no human person is the head of the church. No human person is the head of the church. Jesus himself is, and I quote, head over everything for the church, which is his body. That's Ephesians 1, 22 to 23. And see also Ephesians 5, 23 and Colossians 1, 18. Just because we can't see Christ anymore, just because he's no longer bodily visible on earth doesn't mean that he is somehow divorced from the church. Just because if we can't see him doesn't mean he doesn't care. Doesn't mean that he's not involved with the church. It is his body. And he cares passionately for his body. Quoting Ephesians 5.29, Paul says, After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. So just as we feed and care for our own bodies, so Christ feeds and cares for his body, the church. Now, as we know, the gospel recognises no barriers or distinctions between people. Romans 10.13 says, and I quote, For everyone, everyone, key word, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10.13 Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Therefore, in the, body, in the church, the body of Christ, quote, there is neither Jew or, nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, for we were all baptised by one spirit so as to form one body. That's Galatians 3.28, Colossians 3.11 and 1 Corinthians 12.13 put together there. And Paul savours and dwells on the wonder of the fact that Jews and Gentiles have been reconciled together through Christ. You would think 
Humanly speaking, this is a pretty impossible task to reconcile Jews and Gentiles. You'll be aware of the background of that, because we've talked about it before. And he says, quote, You who are Gentiles were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, that's you Gentiles, who once were far away, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he has made the two groups one. He has made the two groups one. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Remember the hostility between Jews and Gentiles? Going on with the quote, For through him we, that's Jews and Gentiles, both have access to the Father by one Spirit, and in him you too, along with the Jews, are being built together, to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. Now you can find all that in Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22 and also Ephesians 3 and verse 6. So some wonderful, amazing words there of what God has done through Christ and through the spirit. Now, when we respond to the gospel of Christ, we become, quote, members of his body, Ephesians 5, verse 30. Members of his body with all the advantages that brings. And Paul sets out some of these advantages in Ephesians 4, verses 11 to 16. Here is a summary of them that you'll find there. We First of all, we learn and acquire skills that enable us to serve others. We receive teaching from God's word, and in particular, learn about Jesus, the Son of God, and how knowing him affects our lives. We become grounded in our faith and spiritually mature, such that we can stand firm when trials come and don't fall prey to false teachers and those who would lead us astray. As we grow in love for Christ, so we grow in love for others and become united together with them in serving Christ. And with the help of leaders whom God has placed in the church, we hear God's voice and receive his direction. We are cared for, shepherded, built up and taught. And we are encouraged to share the gospel with others and bring them to faith in Christ so that the church will continue to grow. So that's all in Ephesians 4, 11 to 16. There, I've listed from that passage what are the advantages of being a member of the body of Christ. Now, according to Paul's letters and according to the book of Acts, other advantages of being a member of the church include meeting together to worship, pray, 
and partake in the Lord's Supper. Experiencing the gifts of the Spirit being manifested and the power of the Spirit at work among the congregation. Being enriched by fellowship with Christians of different races, nationalities, ethnic groups, backgrounds and social standing which I think must have given rise to some really interesting small group discussions, don't you think? For example, in Philippi, I always think of the home group in Philippi, or connect group, sorry, I should say. In Philippi, where we'd have had Lydia, a businesswoman, well off, the slave girl, fortune-telling slave girl, remember her? Not to mention the Philippian jailer and his family. Well, that's an interesting group to start with. And you'd have that all reflected across all the different churches, transcending all barriers. Everyone is invited into the church through faith in Christ. So, other advantages to proceed with that are benefiting from the mutual support and encouragement that such fellowship brings, especially in times of hardship and persecution, which of course is a very real thing for them. And being involved together in mission, being involved together in mission and spreading the gospel with the joy of seeing people finding Christ as their saviour. So what a tremendous number of advantages there are to being a member of the body of Christ. However, However, in spite of all these advantages, Paul's letters catalogue a number of difficulties and problems which arose in the different churches as they endeavoured to be the body of Christ in the places where they'd been planted. Now, these issues covered a wide range of topics, including maturity and humility, Unity and diversity, food and freedom, poverty and generosity, false teaching, church discipline and restoration, and those we will be covering in this study this evening. Next time, order in worship, the role and conduct of women, I'm definitely selling tickets for the February study, and the Lord's Supper. So, first of all, let's look at the issue of maturity and humility. Some believers found it difficult to progress from worldliness to spiritual maturity. From worldliness to spiritual maturity. Now, you see, many of us were brought up in the Christian faith. Those of you that weren't will have more sympathy and understanding and empathy for the early church because they were not they didn't have that kind of a background so they did that's why they found it difficult to completely change their lifestyle you imagine being asked to do that so instead of worldliness being your focus spirituality is to be your focus and to move from worldliness to spiritual maturity a lot of them found it very difficult and this was definitely the case in the Corinthian church to whom Paul wrote, and I quote from 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 to 3, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, 
not solid food, for you are not yet ready for it. And then come words of lament that after all his trying with them, that they have not made this transition to spiritual maturity. Because he goes on in the quote, Indeed, you're still not ready. You're still worldly. So you can hear the sort of frustration coming out in what he's writing to them. You know, you need to do this, folks. You need to get a grip of this. You need to get a handle on it. Right? You need to do something about it. You need to change your lifestyles. Now, discernment, that's the ability to see things as they really are in God's eyes, is a mark of maturity. Discernment is a mark of maturity. And Paul is looking for the Corinthians to grow in their spiritual discernment and to develop the ability to understand God's will for them. And Paul's frustration with them is that they continue to lack such discernment. And therefore, they remain spiritually ignorant. As he writes in 1 Corinthians 2.14, and I quote, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them, because they are discerned only through the Spirit. And in some churches, Paul found a lack of humility in their service for Christ. Now, not just lack of maturity, but lack of humility. As he writes to the Romans, Romans 12, verses 3 to 5 and verse 10, he says this, and I quote, Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. Honour one another above yourselves. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So that's the issues about maturity and humility in the church that Paul was seeking to tackle. Let's move on then to another issue, this time unity and diversity. Unity and diversity. Paul wrote about the subject of unity and diversity in the body of Christ in his letter to the Corinthians. And there Paul, in a very well-known passage, compared and contrasted the roles of various parts of the body including the ear, the eye, and the nose. And this was his conclusion in 1 Corinthians 12, 19-20. Quote, If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. Many parts, but one body. And Paul continued by saying, that just as every part in the human body needs all the others, so it is in the body of Christ. So he's drawing a comparison between the human body and the body of Christ. Just as the members of the human body make their different and individual contributions to its effectiveness, 
yet function as a team, working in unity and harmony, the same is true of the church. Chapter 12, verse 27, quote, Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Each one of you is a part of it. In other words, each member has a part to play in making the church function effectively. Just as each different part of the body has a part to play in making the human body function effectively. Now, writing to the Ephesians, Paul includes a fervent plea for unity in the church community. It's interesting, isn't it, that the word unity forms the last five words of the word community. So community implies unity coming together in unity. And he writes in Ephesians 4, verses 2 to 6, quote, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That's Ephesians 4, 2-6. Also you'll find that referred to in Colossians 3 and verse 14. Paul's well aware that Disunity grieves the Holy Spirit. Disunity grieves the Holy Spirit because it distracts, it distracts from the main mission of the church, which is what? Which is to reflect God with integrity to the world. So Paul calls all believers to behave honourably towards one another and to remain loyal to each other. Now, this wasn't happening in Corinth. This wasn't happening in Corinth. The church was divided over a number of issues, including the matter of leadership. And hearing from, quote, Chloe's household about the quarrels, as he talks about in 1 Corinthians 1, 11, the quarrels that were ensuing over this issue... Paul must have been distraught. He pleads with them, saying, in verse 10, quote, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. Remember what's at the back of all these things that Paul says is the fact that spreading the gospel is the most important thing because Christ is coming very, very soon. And you've got to present a united front to the world. You've got to be united in what you're saying and what you're showing. Now, you see, the church in Corinth had divided into four main camps. First of all, there was a group that called themselves followers of Paul. This Paul, Paul himself. There were also followers of Apollos. Apollos, you remember, had enjoyed a successful period of ministry there. Look at Acts 18, 24 through to 19, 1. And we talked about that back in study 2. The third group would call themselves followers of Peter. 
Now, Peter is also known as Cephas, which in many translations you'll find that's the word that's used uh, there when we come to the actual quotation. And the followers of Cephas were more than likely Jews who'd become Christians. And then there was a group that identified themselves, oh, we just follow Jesus. So Paul, Apollos, Peter, Cephas, and Jesus. And Paul's response is to ask them, in 1 Corinthians 1.13, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? And he goes on to point out that neither he himself, nor Apollos, nor Peter are responsible for the growth and development of the Corinthian church. The credit and praise for this must go to God himself and no one else because the men involved are simply God's servants. So, in chapter 3, verses 5 to 7 and verses 21 and 23, we read these words and I quote, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither the one who plants or the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. You are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So, the issue there of division in the church. They need to be united in their faith in Christ and not be looking to human leaders, but be looking to God. The next issue we're going to look at is food and freedom. Food and freedom. Surprisingly, perhaps, one of the most contentious issues that divided the early church was whether Christians should eat food that had been offered to idols. Should we eat food that had been offered to idols? And Paul tackles this subject when writing to the church at Corinth. And you'll find his argument set out in great detail in 1 Corinthians and chapter 8. You may like to to turn to that, because we'll be referring to various verses. There, in Corinth, in common it has to be said, with several other cities, so it wasn't just a problem in Corinth, most of the meat on sale in the market was what remained from pagan banquets, and had therefore been dedicated to idols in the pagan temples. Now, some believers, that's the situation. Think how you'd react to that, perhaps. Some believers were adamant that such meat should not be eaten. And they usually used one of two reasons. One of the reasons was, it was because they themselves had been involved in such banquets before coming to Christ. And therefore, they felt it was sinful to eat such meat as it was tantamount to involving themselves in pagan worship again. That was their point of view. So they wouldn't eat it. Or others, who also wouldn't eat it, said, 
that they wouldn't do so because they were aware of what the Old Testament taught about idolatry. And they wanted nothing to do with food that was tainted in this way. So those are the two main reasons that a large proportion of the early Christians wouldn't eat this meat. Now, Paul's response was, as you'll see in chapter 8, Paul's response was that as pagan deities didn't exist, he personally had no problem with eating such meat. See his, his logic there? There's no such thing as pagan deities. You dedicate it to who you, who you want, but it's a complete waste of time because there aren't any. So you, as far as I'm concerned, he says, I don't have a problem with it. I don't have a problem with eating this meat. However, and this is where we get to the interesting bit, if he was having a meal with someone who couldn't bring themselves to eat such meat and may even be tempted back into idol worship if they saw him doing so, he would refrain from eating it. So he put to one side his personal convictions for the sake of the person he was eating with who did have a problem with this sort of thing. So in verse 13 you read, quote, Therefore, if what I eat causes my brother to fall into sin, which he has in particular mind of going back and getting involved in pagan worship, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause him to fall. Now this is an interesting approach, and you'll see why in a moment. You see, this was the loving thing to do. This was the loving thing to do, and Paul expected the other, the other believers to forego their freedom to eat such meat for the good of their, what he calls, weak brother. Weak, in, not in, to do with strength, to do, except perhaps to do with mental strength, the weak person who might be tempted back into the ways of pagan worship. This is a very real and strong thing in Corinthian society. Indeed, as he says in verses 11 and 12, not to do so, in other words, not to forego your freedom, not to do so was to, quote, sin against Christ, unquote. Because exercising their freedom of choice could become what he calls in verse 9, and I quote, a stumbling block to the weak. A stumbling block to the weak. However, <laughs> some of the Corinthians were very, very strident about their rights. Do you think being strident about your rights is a 21st century <coughs> phenomenon? You couldn't be more wrong. The Corinthians, some of them, were very, very strident about their rights. I have the right to do this. I have the freedom to do that and nothing's going to stop me, whatever you say. So Paul had to point out to them that the freedom they have in Christ is a two-sided coin. Freedom in Christ is a two-sided coin, bringing with it the other side of the coin, which is the need to act in a responsible manner. They need, um, need to act in a responsible manner. Freedom brings with it responsibility. It's part 
They are two are part of the same coin, Paul says. And in verses 20, uh, in fact, over in 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 to 24, he writes, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. This is what he's coming back to time and time again in this whole argument about food and freedom, you see. Paul then re-emphasizes how this applies to the food issue with regard to unbelievers as well. If you look at verses 25 to 30 of chapter 10, pointing out the need to be sensitive to the consciences of others and considerate of their feelings on this matter. So Paul concludes in chapter 10, verse 31 through to chapter 11 and verse 1, and I quote, So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that may, they may be saved. Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ. And in his later letter to the Romans, Paul returns to this matter of those who are strong, is the word he uses, in their conscience, not deliberately offending those who are weak. But, and this is a very important but, on the other hand, the strong are not to allow themselves to be manipulated by the weak. That's Romans 14, 1 through to 15, 7. The argument goes on there. The strong are not to allow themselves to be manipulated by the weak. They are to be careful in their dealings with the weak, those who have problems in this area, but not allow themselves to be manipulated. And there's a difference between loving and being allowing yourself to be manipulated. And the issues here in Romans are vegetarianism, wine and observing Jewish holy days. So basically, what you should eat, what you should drink, and what you should remember, what you should, which ceremonies you should follow. And Paul instructs them in Romans 14.1 to avoid, quote, quarrelling over disputable matters. Judgments on such matters, he says, should be left to God. They're to respect each other's views without being judgmental. As he says in 15.7, quote, accept one another. And they are to purpose, Romans 14.13, and I quote, not to put any stumbling block in the way of a brother or sister. They must always act in love. So Romans 14.15, quote, if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. I think he's particularly talking there about when they eat together. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. 
So, Paul's considered view on such matters is this. Romans 14, verse 14 and verse 21. And I quote, I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. It's better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. And I'm sure his emphasis there is on publicly or when you're with them. I mean, what you do in the privacy of your own home, I don't think that's at all a problem with. But you just have to be considerate and loving towards others. And this is how Paul is saying that we should express that. Now, it seems, in fact, that Paul thinks that this issue about food and drink has been blown up out of all proportion as he pleads in Romans 14 verse 20 and I love this look at it <laughs> Romans 14 20 he thinks this issue has been blown up out of all proportion as he pleads for me as I read it I can almost hear his groan as he says and I quote do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. He's saying, for goodness sake, come on. Edifying the church is far more important than what we eat or drink. And as he says in verse 17, chapter 14, quote, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. So why are you focusing on it all? Get it in proportion. Get it in perspective. What is the kingdom of God about? It's about righteousness. You know, how you live your life. Doing what's right in God's sight. It's about peace. It's about joy in the Holy Spirit. We're losing it all because we're getting so het up about food. At least that's how I hear him. That's how it seems to me. Now, when Paul wrote to the Colossians a few years later, and he's written to the Romans, this issue about food, drink, and holy days was still rumbling on, fueled by false teachers. They claimed, you see, that faith in Christ alone is not sufficient for salvation. Certain additions are also required, involving what you can and can't handle, what you can and can't taste what you can and can't touch no, never mind what you eat and drink not to mention dates you observe all these things were sort of added on for salvation you had to do this and you didn't drink that and you didn't eat that and you didn't da -de -da -de -da. so it went on all these additions had been put on to the simple truth of faith in Christ is enough for salvation. They claimed it wasn't. And Paul maintains that believers have been set free from all such regulations. You come to Christ, you're set free. So he writes in Colossians 2.16, quote, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. It doesn't matter. What matters is faith in Christ and the reason Paul goes on to explain that the ceremonial laws 
of the old covenant about eating, drinking and observing dates were only a shadow. A shadow is the phrase he uses in, Col- um, in Colossians 2, if you look down <coughs> to the next verse, verse 17. They were only a shadow because they were symbols pointing to the coming of Christ. And he says, quote, These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So these things all pointed to Christ, but the reality of the situation is found in Christ. These shadowy things had served their purpose, but they were now at an end because Christ had come. Well, some people were still shifting this stuff over from the old covenant, trying to dump it into the new covenant, and that's what was causing all the problem. And as for the rules derived from the philosophy of human wisdom upon which the world operates, Paul reminds the Colossians that they buried these in the baptismal tank. Look at Colossians 2, 20 to 23. And he says this, quote, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, in other words, all its philosophy and so-called wisdom, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to these rules? <coughs> do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Why are you paying it the slightest attention, he says. He goes on. These rules... And he means these rules of what was called asceticism. These rules, which have to do with things that are all destined to perish with us, as everything human does, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And as Paul has already told the Galatians in chapter 5, verse 13 of that epistle, and I quote, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Although believers are free to choose, as believers we're free to choose what we do, clearly Paul expects us to take responsibility for our actions and to live holy lives. So we conclude this particular section with another look at that two-sided coin. Freedom, which we say, oh yeah. Flip it over. Responsibility. Oh no. And the two go together. Now, poverty and generosity... Far from being concerned about food issues, some Christians in the early church, certainly many in Jerusalem, were far more worried about having anything to eat at all. Such was the poverty that they were experiencing. And we flagged this up back in study two. And Paul pleads with the other churches to help those in need in the Jerusalem church by giving sacrificially. Writing to the Corinthians, Paul tells them to make giving money for the poor in Jerusalem part of their weekly routine. 
and he writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2, quote, Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, which is a very significant phrase we'll come on to in a moment, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Because you've been putting by, as a church, members in the church, a certain amount of money every week to give to me so that I can take to these in poverty. Paul tells the Corinthians how, amaz- how amazingly well the churches in Macedonia, which would be Philippi, Thessalonica and Berea, how well those churches have responded to the plight of those in Jerusalem in spite of their own deep poverty and many other hardships. As he says, 2 Corinthians 8, 1-4, quote, We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. Entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. In other words, the Lord's people who were enduring poverty. Not only that, but these churches, especially Philippi, had also generously supported Paul himself financially. And I'm sure that wasn't all to do with Lydia. For which he thanked them. Philippians 4, verses 10 to 20. And Paul promised them that as a result of that, quote, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4.19 Please notice the context of this often quoted out of context statement. It's to do with supporting the poverty among Christians in the church. My God will meet all your needs. Because you sought to meet their need, God will meet your needs. Because they too were in poverty. But they were giving You hear me bang on about context all the time. That's just a very good example. I'm moving on. Paul mentions this fact to the Corinthians, encouraging them to be just as generous. So in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 5 and 7 to 8, we read, and I quote, And they, meaning the Philippians, exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. But since you excel in everything, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. Interesting, isn't it? Test of love, giving. And as a further stimulus to them giving Graciously, Paul reminds the Corinthians of what Christ has done for them by his grace in terms of riches and poverty. And this again is the context of this often quoted verse in chapter 8 and verse 9. Quote, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty... 
you might become, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. So that's the context of that verse. Paul's concerned that their good intentions should be matched by the reality of their giving. It's easy to have good intentions, he's saying to them. You've got to back it up. You know, where's the beef sort of thing? Back up. What you say you'll do, we're actually doing it. Particularly as he had been boasting, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 1, 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 5, about how enthusiastic the Corinthians are to respond to the need. And in chapter 8, 11 to 12, he says, and I quote, Now finish the work, so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Now what I find interesting is that there is no mention of tithing here or in any of Paul's writings. He never uses the word. No mention of tithing. Jesus never mentioned the word tithing. You don't find it in the New Testament. It says, we, that phrase we had before, in keeping with your income. Just giving as much as you can according to your means. On the grounds that it's not how much you give that matters, but what you have left after you have made your gift. That's what matters. Because the problem with tithing is, it canes the poor and lets the rich off easy. Think about it. Do some sums in your head. If you're on £100 a week, what's a tenth? What have you got left? If you're on £1,000 a week, what's a tenth of that? What have you got left? Well, I say, well, I tithe. It's a problem with it. You see, you're supposed to give as much as you can. It's not what you give, it's what you've got left. And you see that, this principle is clear in Mark 12, 41 to 44. Jesus standing at the treasury with the disciples and they watch the widow putting it in. The Pharisees are chucking in huge amounts of money. And what does he say? This widow has given more than any of them. How? No, she hasn't. Actually, yes, she has because of what she's got left. Sorry, I'm getting on my preaching hobby horse. Let's move on. Paul points out that he's not trying to bankrupt them, but rather to see equality of living standards across the church as a whole. And in any case, he's getting them to remember that the boot might be on the other foot at some point in the future. So he says in 2 Corinthians 8, 13 to 40, and I quote, Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. This is what he wants. This is the key word here, equality. And he goes on, At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. That's what he says. End of quote. And to spur the Corinthians on still further, Paul quotes a well-known proverb, which reminds them that, as they give generously, so God will bless them abundantly. But, 
they must only give the amount they are happy with. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 to 8, and I quote, Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. There's the proverb. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things and at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. Their generosity will be the cause of much rejoicing in the church with praise and thanks being given to God. I quote from verses 12 to 13 of chapter 9. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And Paul closes this section of his letter by referring the Corinthians back to God's generosity in the giving of Christ. And so here again is the context of this lovely verse that we often pull out at Christmas and stick on our Christmas cards. And quite rightly too, I do it, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. But then I need to remind myself again of the context of that. It's to do with financial giving so that there may be a quality in the church. See, this is a big problem. There was no welfare benefits or whatever payments you like to think of, <coughs> universal credit or any other kind of credit. It relied on the generosity of others in the church supporting their fellow brothers and sisters. And it seems, in fact, that the Corinthians did indeed respond, in case you were wondering. They did indeed respond to Paul's appeal, because in his letter to the Romans which was written later on from Corinth, incidentally, he writes this in Romans 15, 26 to 27. And I quote, For Macedonia and Achaia, that's the churches of Corinth and Athens, were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the Lord's people in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. It's an interesting thing to say. They owe it to them. Why? For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, and of course he's referring there especially Christ and the Gospel as Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews, in other words to the Jewish Christians, to share with them their material blessings. So they receive spiritual blessings at the hands of the Jews in the form of the Lord Jesus Christ being born a Jew and the Gospel, of course. And they owe it to their fellow Jews who have now become Christians to share with them their own personal material blessings. Another issue which needed addressing in the church as it was causing havoc and resulting in damaging divisions in the church was the plethora of false teaching. The plethora of false teaching. There were many false apostles who went from church to church peddling their subtle 
blend of truth and error as they sought to break up the church and set up their own sects, mainly for their own self-aggrandizement and self-glorification, it has to be said, not to mention for their own financial gain. And we talked about this in some detail back in study two. And these people included Judaizers, who you remember were insisting that converts to Christianity must comply with all the Jewish rules and regulations, such as circumcision. The Gnostics, whose fundamental belief was that the spirit is entirely good and matter is entirely evil, which means our bodies, therefore, are entirely evil. And they also claim to have secret, special knowledge that was necessary for salvation rather than faith in Christ. Gnostics is that from knowledge. Some Gnostics denied the humanity of Christ, saying that he only seemed to have a body. Others denied his divinity, saying that he was human but not divine. So you can see there are all these splinter bits within this umbrella called Gnosticism. Other preachers maintained that salvation required the observance of rules and regulations concerning food and other aspects of life. And this is known as ceremonialism that we've already touched on this evening. Some even forbade marriage. Others claimed that the resurrection of the dead had already taken place. Other false teachings included angel worship. So there was a lot of it, a lot of it, about far more than we probably realise. Now Paul's first recorded mention of this problem of false teachers is to be found in his warning to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20, verses 29 to 31, where we read, quote, Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. And Paul's letters are full, absolutely full, of dire and forceful warnings about such people. For example, Romans 16, 17 to 18, quote, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Jesus, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Colossians 2, verses 4 and 8, quote, I tell you this, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. 1 Timothy 4, 2-3 Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they are conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words 
that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, the severity of these warnings, because he's not mentioning these words here, is he? Is indicative of the massive threat to the stability, unity, progress and growth of the church that he believed that these false teachers presented. Paul must therefore have been in despair, not to mention downright angry at the tolerance, even acceptance of such teachings in some churches. So, 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, quote, But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the snake's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. And then he goes on and he writes to the Galatians, chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, Six, yeah, six and nine, and verse chapter five and verse seven. Quote: I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. You are running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? See, Paul's adamant that such false teaching should not be met with a passive oh, it doesn't really matter, I suppose we can accept that approach, but rather confronted and dealt with. After all, as Paul reminds the Corinthians, divine weapons are available. Divine weapons are available to combat anything that comes against the church. 2 Corinthians 10, 4-5, quote, The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And Paul's determined to confront and to deal with those people who are causing confusion in the Christian church, exposing them for what they are, along with the source of their teachings, and their ultimate end. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, quote, But I will come to you, and then I will find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. 2 Corinthians 11.12-15, quote, And I will keep on doing what I am doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about. For such people are false prophets, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions 
deserve. End of quote. Strong stuff. And there's more folks concerned that the next generation of pastors should know how to handle such people. Paul gives instructions to Titus and at some length to Timothy. These false teachers are to be silenced and shunned. So, in writing to Titus, chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, and chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, he says these words. Quote, For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception. They must be silenced, because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law, because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. You may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. End of quote. So that's his advice to Titus in his pastoral role in Crete and elsewhere. And Timothy is to take a firm line with people who are involved with false teaching, 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, where we read, quote, command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. End of quote. Such false ideas are to be given no credence. So he writes to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6, 20-21, quote, Guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in so doing have departed from the faith. End of quote. Paul emphasises, you see, to Timothy that the best way of dealing with false doctrines is to warn the people not to entertain them and to keep on teaching them the true doctrines of the Christian faith. And in 2 Timothy 2, 14-18 he writes, and I quote, Keep reminding God's people of these things. Warn them before God against quarrelling about words that's of no value and only ruins those who listen. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have departed from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place. And they destroy the faith of some. <coughs> the problem of false teaching and how it needed to be confronted. The final issue we're going to look at today is discipline and restoration. <coughs> Not only does Paul want false teachers to be confronted and dealt with by the church, but also those who by their lifestyles are bringing the church and the gospel into disrepute. Paul expects the church to be aware of what is happening in the lives of the members of its congregation and to impose discipline, even expulsion, where he in fact echoes instructions given in the book of Deuteronomy, 
even expulsion where necessary. So he writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 12 to 13, quote, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. That's his quote from Deuteronomy, which he reaffirms here. However, this is important to notice, except in extreme cases, Paul wants the disciplining of offenders to be done in such a way as to bring about their speedy restoration. That's really important to grab hold of. Not just a matter of discipline. Discipline is important, but it's to bring about restoration. That's the purpose of it. Concerned to preserve unity in the church, Paul tells the Thessalonians to exercise such discipline with regard to those who show reluctance to go along with what he has written in his letter to them. So he writes in 2 Thessalonians 3, 14-15, quote, Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet do not regard them as an enemy, but warn them as you would a fellow believer. End of quote. So you see, Paul wants them to be drawn back gently into the fellowship of the church. And Paul's all the while looking for the three R's. Remorse, repentance, restoration. Remorse, repentance, and restoration. The three R's of discipline, if you like. Or the response to discipline. Paul writes to the Corinthians about a particular case that's offended a lot of people in the church there. Although discipline has been applied in this case, forgiveness and loving restoration have apparently not taken place, despite the remorse and repentance of the offender. And Paul rebukes them for not dealing with this situation properly, pointing out that Satan is always looking for such opportunities as this to cause division in the church. So he writes in 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 7 and verse 11, quote, If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you therefore to reaffirm your love for him in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Interesting it's in that context that we get that verse, isn't it? Ironically, this same church, the church in Corinth, had previously failed to take the strong action required against a member who's guilty of incest. They just let that go on. And we mentioned that when I was talking about um, living the Christian life and the whole thing about sexual immorality came up then in that study. Study 8, indeed. This person who committed incest had apparently neither shown neither remorse nor repentance and should therefore have been expelled from the church but wasn't. So we get 1 Corinthians 5 verse 2, quote, shouldn't you rather 
have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this. So, got to be consistent with your disciplining, but you're looking for restoration. You're looking in response to the person's remorse and repentance, basically, in the church. In conclusion, it says that it's especially important that church leaders themselves are seen to be living lives which are an example to their congregation. So if they are found guilty of wrongdoing, and we don't just mean the minister, we mean everybody who's in leadership positions of any description, if they're found guilty of wrongdoing, Paul says they are to be admonished publicly. Admonished publicly as a warning to everyone. So he writes to 1 Timothy 1 Timothy 5 verse 20 says, and I quote, But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone, so that others may take warning. So here, this evening, we've dealt with some very strong stuff that Paul is bringing into the church so that the church remains together, is not split apart uh, by Satan. It's to prevent, it's necessary to prevent the church and the gospel message being brought into disrepute by the wrong lifestyles of its leaders and members.